Welcome to the Leaders in Payments podcast, where we talk to C-level leaders from across the payments landscape. We'll be discussing the products and services that impact the payment space today, as well as trends and predictions for the future of payments. We will also hear stories from our guests about their journeys to the top. One of the best things about this industry is that I don't know what's going to come up next, right? Buy now, pay later has become increasingly popular. EWA has become increasingly popular. I don't know what's coming, but that doesn't mean that I'm not excited to see what may come because I think there are a lot of smart people that we work with here in the industry that are looking for creative ways to provide services that really haven't been thought of or you put a spin on something in a new way that hasn't been done before. That was Brian Tate, the CEO and president of the IPA, the Innovative Payments Association, and he's my special guest on this episode, episode 229 of the Leaders in Payments podcast, and I'm your host, Greg Myers. Brian grew up in Maryland and has a passion for meeting new people and new companies. Away from work, he loves spending time with his family and getting away with a good book or movie. The IPA is a trade group of a little over 60 companies that focuses on payments and what is going on in the regulatory world. They try to help their members develop positions on a consensus basis and use those positions to advocate for the industry. Their members include very large financial institutions, some small financial institutions, program managers, processors, and a number of law firms. Brian and I go on to talk about his journey to becoming the CEO and president of the IPA, as well as some of the hot topics in the payment space today. We've got a great episode ahead, so let's get started. Hi, Brian. Thank you for being here and welcome to the Leaders in Payments podcast. Greg, thank you for having me. I I very much appreciate you uh, inviting me on the show. Absolutely. So let's dive right in. If you don't mind, tell our audience a little bit about yourself, maybe where you grew up, where you went to school, where you currently live, a few things like that. Sure, I'd be happy to. All the hard questions up front. So I grew up in Maryland, right outside of uh, Washington, D.C. in Silver Spring and went to high school in Washington, D.C. actually. So Then went off to college to a very tiny school that very few people have actually heard of, unless you're from Pennsylvania, called King's College in the middle of Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. After that, ended up going to graduate school at George Washington University and got my master's and then finally off to law school at Howard University in Washington, D.C. So a lot of schooling. I'm not sure it all took, but uh, I made it through. (laughs) Very good. And you're currently living where? I currently live not too far from where I grew up in Maryland, near Germantown, Maryland. So I think this is one of the great places to live. And so while I've uh, veered off from here and there on occasion, I always knew I was going to make this my home. Great. Let's talk about IPA. So tell our audience what IPA does. Well, the IPA is like a lot of other trade associations, especially for those people who live in Washington, D.C., But if you don't, we are a trade group of a little over 60 companies, and our job is to focus on payments. And we help our members kind of digest what's going on around them in the regulatory world and and on Capitol Hill. We do our best to keep them up to date. We try to identify issues that might be important to them. So if there is an issue that has risen to the top levels of debate in Congress or amongst the regulators. We try to help our members develop positions to respond to those, either supportive or raising questions of our own. 
We try to do our best to develop positions on a consensus basis with our members and use those positions to advocate for the industry. And we do that before Congress, occasionally the media and the regulators to make sure that they are part of the conversation and let the decision makers know, I guess, at the, at a minimum, what the opinion is of the industry and do our best to try to work with all those groups collaboratively for the best outcome possible. You know, the payments industry can be broadly defined. Are there certain areas that you concentrate on or is it truly kind of broad across all areas of payments? Well, I like to think that payments industry in and of itself is very broad. We are part of the larger kind of financial services or banking world, but payments is kind of its individual own niche. And so we focus a lot on products in the payment system. So mobile wallets, P2P payments, prepaid cards, DDAs, all of these products, while very similar, do have their kind of minor changes. And so the nuance becomes important and understanding the rules and regulations on how each of those individual products is extremely important to our companies. They develop these products for their customers to help them with their financial day-to-day lives, and we take that very seriously. And so not only do we help our members develop positions and help them advocate, we do our best to kind of keep up what products are in the marketplace, what's popular, what is you helping people manage money, what products may be a little bit outdated, and the rules behind them. And I think for those who work in the industry, they understand the close relationship between the regulations and the products themselves. Sometimes the regulations dictate how products are developed and sometimes the products run out and the regulators have to catch up. And so it's almost like a rubber band. There's sometimes tension and sometimes not. But the goal, again, is to try to work with all the stakeholders here because I think everyone wants the best outcome for the consumer. Sure, sure. Can you give us a, a profile? If you don't want to name names of, of member companies, that's fine. But could you give us a profile of what that kind of looks like? Sure. So we like to think that we have a good range of companies that fill out the different spots in the value chain and bringing these products to market. So we do have very large institutions. We have a handful of those. We do have some very small institutions and, and those in between. So the size in a lot of ways matters, but sometimes it doesn't. We have program managers that partner with financial institutions. We'll have third party providers that are very similar and providing a particular product or helping a bank develop products. We have uh, processors here. We have a number of law firms here. And we have some companies that help with regulations on a consulting basis. And so our members, again, will range the whole spectrum here. And while they're all in the same community, I like to say, they play different roles. And so while a bank may partner with a third party to provide a product on the market, they may need a network. We have the networks that are members as well. And it takes a team of partners to bring products to market in a lot of cases. And I think with the specialization, it allows some companies to focus on how to make the will better, how to make it function better, how to ride better. And again, this is all for the benefit of the consumer. Now, there are some institutions who can do all of these things in-house, but you end up at some point needing to partner with somebody. And I think that is to everyone's benefit because everyone gets to bring their expertise to the table. 
Sure. So I think one of the big pieces of, of what you do is the advocacy side. So can you talk a little bit about what does that really mean? What do you do? What does that look like on a day-to-day basis? You know, part of it is knowing what our members are thinking. So we do our best to stay in touch with them as best as possible. We engage directly with our members through email, through calls, through social media. We want to know what they're thinking and their thinking helps inform our thinking because they're the ones closest to the ground, closest to the customer. And there may, things move so quickly, especially over the last five to seven years in this space. One person can't know everything. So we try our best to meet our members where they are because they're focused on their business and we're supposed to be helping them navigate the regulatory side so they can continue to focus on their business. As we've all learned over the last couple of months at the beginning of this year, that regulations matter and having people who understand how those regulations work are important. And so, like I said, when we try to develop consensus positions, we really do mean that. We're not here for the benefit of any one individual company. We are trying to find the best policy solutions for the vast majority of our members. And sometimes that takes some interpretation by us. They will ask us, well, what does this regulation mean, especially if something is new or just being proposed? They'll ask us, why was this proposed? And we try to answer that to the best of our ability. And then, again, try to find a position that, and I think there is a kind of perception, misperception out there that the banking industry isn't regulated, doesn't want to be regulated, and that's not accurate. I think the question is not regulation or if we're going to be regulated, we are. The question is, there's got to be a balance. And where is that balance on the scale? And I think we're all trying to find that. And again, I think working together with policymakers, so whether it's going to the Hill, having conversations, I've testified over the last couple of years in front of Congress, writing comment letters, op-eds, there's many ways to get messages out, but we try to get those messages out and make sure that they're consistent. You know, I've always said if there's a new product on the market, it is on industry to explain how that product works, to make sure the regulators know how it works, make sure the policymakers do, the media does, and most importantly, the consumer. And so we try to help our members with that. In terms of understanding and digesting regulations, we are always trying to make sure that our members understand the smallest changes that may take place amongst the regulators so they understand whether it's third-party compliance, whether it's the rules at the CFPB, in terms of disclosures and regulation E. So we are constantly trying to make sure our members are in the know. And we do that in several ways, not just working directly with them, but we do host events where we try to bring in experts. So every year we host a boot camp. This year it will be in September. And we try to invite our members there where we have experts come in and talk about and break down individual subjects. So Again, the people who are working on the regulatory side at these institutions and companies know if there is a slight change, they can get the where, who, what, where, and why at some of these events. And what would you say makes you guys different from some of the other organizations out there? You know, I like to think that with our experience that in our focus, while there's a number of issues that a number of different groups work on, in financial services, our expertise is on payments. And so we focus really hard on that particular issue. We try to drill deep down. If I don't know an answer, one of my colleagues does. We work with outside consultants and law firms to make sure that we understand and try to answer the questions we can for our members. And while there are a number of different adjacent issues to payments, and sometimes we 
we wade into those when it's appropriate. And sometimes it may be maybe too far away or too many degrees away from what we're thinking about. But our core mission, again, is focused on helping our companies in the payments community understand the world around them and the changes there. And I, there are other groups in this space. And although we are aware of those groups in those space, we try very hard to focus on what we do to make sure that our members are getting the most out of us. That focus on on payments and being very focused to your mission is is a big differentiator, it sounds like. It is. And I, and I think people outside of this kind of sector or community don't have a sense or just may not be paying attention to, again, the nuance and the detail that needs to happen here in order to just bring a single product to market, much, much less a number of different products coming from one company. The technology is changing every single day. You know, chat GPT seems like it snuck up on everybody. There are products that have been on the market that are still extremely helpful, even though they're not brand new. So it is a lot of work. It is something we love to do, though, but it is very complicated here. And I've worked in different parts of banking before. And to me, this has always been the most exciting one that I've had the chance to work in because, again, nothing is static here somebody's coming out with a new idea, a new product, a new way to market, a new way to present it. If you had asked somebody 10, 15 years ago what a mobile wallet was, they may have looked at you sideways. But now they're they're not everywhere, but they are front and center with a group of other products that people use on a day-to-day basis. If I were to tell you that prepaid cards, which kind of led the way 20, 15, 20 years ago, would still be have a place in this market, one might be surprised during the pandemic. You know, prepaid cards were the way that a lot of states and local governments dispersed COVID relief payments in whatever form they came in. And so every place, every product out on the market today has a role. If I were to tell you 10 years ago that we'd all be sending money through PayPal or Zelle on a P2P basis or whatever product you have, you might have thought that was impossible. So there's always going to be something new. There's a new way to do it. There's a new way to bundle these products. You're seeing super apps that try to do a variety of things. And I think these are all things that are benefit to the consumer. You know, I'm always reminded of the phrase of, you know, Muhammad won't come to the mountain. You bring the mountain to Muhammad. And, you know, our companies are bringing these products to where people are. And I think that is more efficient than we were 20 years ago. You no longer have to just stand in line at the bank or try to find an ATM in a new town. If you have a cell phone or you have access online, you can connect anywhere and manage your, you know, your financial, your financial portfolio, whatever that may be. Well, obviously you have a a pretty good pulse on what's going on in the industry. So what do you think the the trends are? Where, Where do you see the payments industry headed, say, in the next two to three years? You know, I'm not sure, but I will say, you know, COVID sped up a lot of things. You look at some of the research out there and some of the reports while everyone anticipated before COVID or we even knew what COVID was, the trends were always that there's going to be increased online use, increased access to online through cell phones and other means. COVID, you know, I think obviously sped a lot of that up where we had to find different ways to manage our money. And for those who weren't managing it electronically, a lot of them are now. I think what's going to happen in the next couple of years is that you're going to see, continue to see some innovations. You're going to continue to see companies find their, their niche and options still be made available to people 
at different levels in different places that will help them manage their day-to-day lives. Again, as I mentioned, if you had said 15 years ago, we were all going to use mobile wallets to pay for things online, you might have looked at me and scratched your head. One of the best things about this industry is that I don't know what's going to come up next, right? Buy now, pay later has become increasingly popular. EWA has become increasingly popular. One of the good things is I don't know what's coming, but that doesn't mean that I'm not excited to see what what may come because I think there are a lot of smart people that we work with here in the industry that are looking for creative ways to provide services that really haven't been thought of or you put a spin on something in a new way that hasn't been done before. So this is one of the most exciting places, again, to work in banking. What I do anticipate, though, is that you might see more super apps. You might see, while it may have one big provider in front of it, you're going to continue to see kind of partners behind the scenes who are making all of that work that you may not necessarily know of. So I always think, again, it takes a team to bring a product to market, and I think you're going to see more of that in the future. Yeah, I I would agree with you. Well, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about you. So you mentioned law school, maybe catch us up between law school and being the CEO and president there. Kind of what was your career journey like? You know, if if I was talking to my kids, I'd just say I was CEO right out of law school. But it, 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 it was a winding trail. And one of the best quotes I ever heard from a bank CEO was Richard Davis, former CEO of U.S. Bank, who used to say, nobody grows up dreaming to be a banker. And, you know, I, it's something you kind of just find yourself in or fall into. After law school, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with all the schooling I had, and it took me a while. And I had worked on Capitol Hill um, after college for a couple of years. I had an internship at the White House for during school. So I was very fortunate to get that. And while I was looking around trying to figure out what to do, there was a position at a credit union trade association. And at the time, I didn't know much about banking other than the fact that I had a checking account with about five bucks in it. But they hired me and I became their advocate in Washington, D.C. and in Annapolis in Maryland. And I learned a ton about the behind the scenes in in banking, even though it was a a credit union group, a lot of similar issues, right? They, everyone's got a checking account and makes mortgages and auto loans. So I like to say the credit unions gave me the basics to kind of an understanding of how all of this works behind the scenes. And at the same time, getting to meet people in Annapolis and in Washington, DC and networking and learning how to advocate on behalf of a third party, which I had never done before. So there was a lot of learning on the fly. And then I ended up working at CUNA, kind of the National Group for Credit Unions in Washington, D.C. for about a year and a half. Went back to my old job at the, at the Maryland Credit Union Trade Association. A little bit after the crisis started in 07, 08, found myself working for a group that is no longer around is the Financial Services Roundtable. And it was a very interesting time. As I mentioned, the crisis had taken place and people were trying to figure out what's next and what are people going to do? How is the industry going to be re-regulated? And I had the, uh, the, the great opportunity to learn and about a lot of different parts of banking that I probably wouldn't have been able to access outside of that group and got to work on a number of different issues, including retirement issues, small business issues, payments issues, too big to fail discussions. And so it was really kind of a remarkable time 
in that everything was being looked at. And so I didn't necessarily need a background in it because things were changing so fast and new things were being implemented. And on top of that, I had access to people who were experts in the, in their field that helped me along. And so I was very fortunate to go through that experience and be a part of kind of the group of people. And it's a big group who were having these discussions and how should things look post-crisis and really had the opportunity to dive in on a lot of issues. And then I, I guess by fortune or luck or circumstance, one day I ended up writing a comment letter in response to a proposal or an AMPR from the CFPB on prepaid cards. And I didn't know anyone. I didn't know anything about prepaid cards at the time. And I ended up Googling this group and it ended up being the group that I ended up working here for, (laughs) the Network Branded Prepaid Card Association. And I got to talk to a person named Terry Maher. And Terry didn't know me out of the blue from anyone, but he was generous with his time. He answered my questions and I was able to draft my comment letter. And a little bit after that, there was a position open and I liked Terry so much, I thought I'd at least inquire about the position. And uh, he encouraged me to apply for it. And I ended up here. (laughs) Um, And lucky for me, when I first got here, there was uh, a second step in that proposal from the CFPB on what would be called the prepaid card rule generally. And it was large in scope. The proposal itself was about 800 pages and the final rule was about 2000 pages. And so this was a big event for our members at the time. And I'm just lucky I got to play a role in helping them go through all of the issues because it was a comprehensive regulation and learn a lot about how payments work and learn from some of the best here, including Terry. And so after that, We went through some leadership changes and I eventually became in charge. And while I was very grateful to work for MBPCA, we did end up rebranding the organization, the IPA, just because some of the changes that have taken place in the payment space. And we needed to keep up with not only our members, but also what was going on in the larger payments community. So we made that change about 2017, 2018. And again, the world keeps changing. Again, there's new products, there's the marketplace lending, there's there's EWA, buy now, pay later. Again, these super apps that have come to provide a number of different services. So while I've been very fortunate to work with a lot of great people, smart people who make me look smarter than I am, it was not a straight line to get here. I appreciate it. It's always, it's always good to hear the backstory of how people got to to leadership roles. So that was, that was interesting. What are some things you're passionate about? So maybe one work related passion and one personal passion. Passionate about meeting new people and meeting new companies and in and working with our existing. I, I love the fact that we had get the hold a conference every year. We just wrapped up our conference in early May. We only. It's our biggest event of the year, and so we only get to do it once. But it's always great to see people, especially since a lot of people didn't get to travel the last couple of years. But I, again, I like meeting kind of the innovators in our industry. There are a lot of a lot of them and really smart people who really care about what they're doing. And again, all of these people in some way have made me smarter and made me work harder. It, it is always surprising to me. You'll go someplace and there'll just be a startup in all parts of the country. And I've, I've been fortunate enough to travel to different parts of the country to meet these people. There's never been a trip that I have gone on work-wise where I didn't learn something new. 
where if I didn't meet a new person, I, I met somebody who had a new idea. And it's always great to see somebody who's thinking about or developing a product and a year later you see it in the market and you go, you know what? They said they were going to do it and they did it. Um, so that's what gets me energized to continue to do the work that we do here because there's, there's no two days that are alike. There's always something, a headline, a new company, a new idea. And again, I've worked in a lot of parts of banking and nothing against those parts, but they don't change as constantly or evolve as rapidly as payments do. What about a personal passion? That's always tough because <laughs> uh, there's a lot to do behind work, but you know, enjoying my kids, taking a, a break away in distractions, movies or books. One of the things we've tried to do is tie some of what our um, employees here are doing and bring that into our work. So for instance, we started a book club recently and the most recent book we read was The Prince by Machiavelli. So we try to tie everything in. We plan to do kind of cover movies and things that are interesting that may have a, a step in, in whatever world they were written in or, or developed in, tie it to payments. And so, you know, I, I am, again, lucky that I get to bring some of my personal stuff into work in a way that's interesting, hopefully, or at least to me. But I feel really passionate about the stuff that my kids are doing. A lot of them are, are in sports. All of them have been in sports. And just watching them, that's, uh, that's a thing you can't pay for or something I can't substitute for. It, it, it's great that they're doing things on their own at this point. And I just get to watch and, and, and enjoy myself. Yeah, yeah, I love it. Say someone's going to start working for you and they're coming into payments. They either are right out of college, have no real you know, career path, but they say, hey, I heard payments is a great place to work. And you know, they come on board. What advice would you give them to be successful in the payments industry? Wow. I think the number one thing that I would share with, with somebody is to be patient. There is a lot to learn here. And it's not something you can parachute in and think, that you're going to understand it. And just reading about a product or reading a regulation takes a lot of skill that, that comes with time and surround yourself with good people. There are a lot of good people here who know what they're doing and lean on them. And a lot of the people here that I work with have been very generous with their time with me and others. And you're not going to learn everything in a day. It may look easy, right? The, there's a lot of work that goes into when you slide a card at checkout or hit a button online to pay for something. There's a lot of history there, whether it's, you know, 20 or 30 years and how to make that product work smoothly. And while you may have used that product, knowing how that product is put together and why that product is put together and the thinking behind it does just simply take time to learn. But I mean, it's, it's kind of like riding a bike. Once you get on it, you get past that wobbly stage. It does kind of become more interesting because once you have the basics, you can see where people have built things and you can kind of see where things are going. So I would just say be patient. And again, I don't think anyone is growing up dying as a, as a 10 year old to go, you know what? I want to be a, a fireman, a policeman or a banker. Right. <laughs> right. So it is, it is just one of those life things that, you know, we all get pushed in certain directions. But if you're here, I do think this is a great space. Again, this has been the most interesting space that I've worked in in my career. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I think payments is is a very interesting place to be, and it you know has been for a while. And I I love your advice of being patient, and there is so much to learn, and so many nuances in our in our industry. So I think being patient is a, is a great advice. Well, Brian, we've covered a lot of ground about the IPA, about you, about the industry as a whole. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we wrap up? No, I've enjoyed the conversation and would love to come back at some point in the future if that's okay. And if you have any follow-up questions for me, we're always open. I think one of the best things the industry can do is to continue to have conversations like these to let more people know about what we're doing. I think one of the things that I like to tell our members is if we don't share our story, somebody else will. And I think we are the ones who can tell it the best. And I think there's a lot of, of good things to share here. You know, I touched on COVID and one of the things I always try to highlight with our members and others is that when we all had to scramble and go home and stay home for a year or two or whatever it was, the system worked, right? The infrastructure, the the investments, the people who make this train run every day, that train ran even under the most difficult circumstances. And while there may have been a track that was bent along the way here and there, for the most part, if you take a big picture, look at everything, people received their funds, people were able to conduct business, people were able to manage their money from their homes. And I think all of us should be proud of that. Yeah, I agree. And one final question, what would be the best way for people to reach you or to learn more about the IPA? Sure. Well, there's two ways. One is always our website, which is simply www.ipa.org. Or they can feel free to email me directly. My email is btate at ipa.org. We'd love to hear from people out there. We love to, to work with different companies. So if they're interested or just have a question, they should feel free to reach out to me. Okay, great. Well, Brian, thank you so much for being on the show today. I know your time's very valuable, so I really appreciate you being here. Greg, thank you and look forward to talking to you soon. Absolutely. And to all you listeners out there, I thank you for your time as well. And until the next story. Thank you for joining us this week on the Leaders in Payments podcast. Make sure you visit our website at leadersinpayments.com, where you can subscribe to the show and where you'll find our show notes. If you enjoyed listening, please share on your social channels as well. 